Good morning, everyone. How you doing? Did you like the, uh, as, as we were coming in this morning, the kind of that, like, spring snow stuff falling down? It's like we were in the upside down or something there. That was pretty crazy. Okay, if you have a Bible, if you want to uh, find Galatians chapter 5, the book of Galatians is about halfway through the New Testament, so if you go to kind of the back end of your Bible, you should find it. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind us in a moment or so. We're working through a, a short series here at Liberty uh, on the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're doing that because it's one of our key values as a church. We would describe ourselves as a, a charismatic church, uh, which that word might not mean anything to you, um, or that might mean all sorts of weird and wacky and crazy and frightening things, but basically means we're a people that want to pursue more of God and more of the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. We believe that God uh, is alive today and has sent his Holy Spirit into our lives uh, to help us to know more of him, but also to help us to build his church, to see others come to know him, and that we can know his power within us day by day. So we're working through a series to really consider and work out as a community what that, what that means, what that means for us. Uh, and today what we're going to look at a part of that, uh, that series is we're going to talk about the sanctifying spirit, about how the Holy Spirit works in us to help us to become more like Jesus. His name is the Holy Spirit. He helps us to grow in holiness. He helps us to become more like him, to be sanctified, to grow in awareness of him and help us to walk with him. And that, to be honest, that might not be the message that you want to hear. You think, we're doing a series about the work of the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about miracles or prophecy or the gift of tongues. And, or that might terrify you, talking about the gift of tongues. Or you might think, what on earth is the gift of tongues? Is that like some weird Christian kissing thing? <laughs> well, come back in a few weeks' time, you'll find out. <laughs> But actually, um, I think what we're going to talk about this morning, for some of you here, might actually be the most important message in this series for you, perhaps the thing that you really need to hear. Because often, uh, particularly in some Christian circles, we get very excited and we pray for and we long for like a move of God. You don't need to spend much time in our city and there's so much about this city that I love. But there's also parts of this city that, that upset me, that grieve me, and cause me to pray for a move of God, a move of the Holy Spirit in Amsterdam. You know, we want that, right? But when you read through church history, and you read about times like that, when God suddenly comes upon a place or a group of people with his power, people often call them like a revival, 
normally when that happens, it starts in here. It starts in your heart. It starts when God comes upon a group of people and brings a deep sense, often, of repentance. That is, I need to, I need to turn away from this. What's happening in my life isn't godly. It isn't right. And puts a desire in us for holiness. That's normally how most moves of God, how most moves of the Holy Spirit start. They don't start in a wonderful kind of worship praise party where we just have lots of fun. Although that's a wonderful, brilliant thing. But they start sometimes in a very solemn, deep place of goodness. Isn't God holy and powerful and majestic? I need, I need to change. I need to become more like him. And I can only do that, I can only do that with his power within me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Because we started this series a few weeks ago in uh, John chapter 16 uh, with a verse where Jesus says to his disciples, it's better if I go so that I can send the Holy Spirit. So that's how we started this series. It's better that Jesus has now ascended up to heaven, which we were celebrating on Thursday this week, the ascension. It's better that Jesus goes so he can send his Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus says to us. But then in the next verse, it goes on to say, it's better that I go, and then verse 8 of chapter 16, and when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin. (laughs) So it doesn't say, and when he comes, miracles and fire and power, although that does happen. But he says, and when he comes, he will convict the world. That's one of the things the Holy Spirit will do in your life. He will come and give you a sense of conviction, where he pinpoint errors in your life that need to change things in your life that need to die. Errors in your life where you need to turn away from that. We need to get rid of that. We need to confess that and move on to something else. That's what the Holy Spirit does. In 1 Peter, Peter describes the Holy Spirit as something that comes to bring the the sanctification of the Spirit. That's how he describes him there. And that's one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit to bring about holiness within us. With the famous verse in 1 Corinthians where it says, do you you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He doesn't say that your body is a a house, you know, a shack, a a shed. He says, no, it's it's a temple of the Holy Spirit, a holy place. It's what we're supposed to be. As a community, as individuals, the Holy Spirit comes and he, he makes his home within us as his temple, as a holy place. Let me pray and then we will read the passage together. Jesus, oh, we, just, uh, we just want to invite you to move amongst us this morning and we just want to confess our utter and absolute need for you, that no one comes here this morning as perfect, no one comes here this morning with a kind of perfect record of this week, look at all my wins, we come to you this morning just, just as we are, 
with all our successes, with all our failures, with all our ups and downs, our strengths, our weaknesses, and we confess that we need you, that we needed you the, the first time we ever came to know you, when you first breathed into our hearts to help us to see you for the very first time, and we need you today. If we've been a, a Christian for 10 seconds or 10 days or 10 years, we need you. We need you, God. We pray, Holy Spirit, come help us to hear what you have to say to us. We pray you'd speak right into our souls, we pray. Amen. Okay, let's turn and read. If we could put the scripture up on the screen. Let me read this. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and those were just all the emotions I was feeling last night when Tottenham lost the Champions League final. <laughs> fits of anger. Where were we? Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things as these there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you know, your smartphone or your laptop computer or whatever just goes into kind of meltdown and just stops working and you have to do that dreaded thing where you go into the settings and, and say, reset to factory settings. You think, I don't know what's gonna happen. You know, is this, what, is my, everything's gonna be lost. And you have to re reset it back to its, its default. You know, what it was like when it was first made. And in this passage where it talks here about the desires of the flesh, that's kind of what the flesh is. It's probably the best way to describe it. It's like our, our kind of our default setting. <laughs> if you stripped us right back to the very beginning of who we were, then you would find us as self-centered and selfish, as sinful. You don't need to spend very much time with small children. Not that they're all completely evil, but they, you can tell that at the core of their desire is to get what they want. And it's very easy to, to, particularly as a parent, to fall into judgment for them until you realize that most of my own desires are driven by that same need. I want them to be quiet 
not because I necessarily think they're doing anything wrong, but because in reality, I just want some peace. It's, it's a very selfish desire from myself that it comes from. I'm telling them off for being selfish, by, for making noise, but in reality, it's my selfishness. That's my default, my factory setting. That's what my flesh is. It's just this selfish, self-centered impulse within me. It's this kind of fragility, this weakness within each of us. And you can read this passage here where it's talking about the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And it can sound a bit like there are, there are sort of two competing forces at war within us. As though there's kind of this cosmic tug of war happening within your heart. And I think we need to get to the heart of this and first of all, right at the outset, say that this isn't an equal battle. This isn't an equal battle. Because it says, it goes on to say in that passage that our old body, our flesh, was crucified with him. It says in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. See, a decisive victory has already been one. If you're a believer in Jesus, that's the first thing you need to know about yourself, that a victory has been won. That this flesh, this sinful nature has been put to death. That Christ died for that to bring you into liberty, into freedom with him. That's something that's happened. It's taken place. You're no longer a slave to sin. It says in Romans 8, we have no debt to pay for it. We have no account that we need to clear. No debt needs to be paid. We're under a new law, a new way of life now, the law of the Spirit. The old things have passed away and the new has come. That's what it is to be a believer in Jesus that he's come into your life and he's cleansed you. That in some way that I don't think we'll ever really fully understand, he has already made you holy. So the Father, we were talking a few weeks ago about the love of the Father, how the Holy Spirit brings that love alive in our hearts. God the Father looks on you and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. Perfect, spotless, Pure. That's what God sees in you. And that means that you are as free now as you'll ever be. You have a perfect liberty already in him. And therefore, if you think about it, to, as it says in this passage, to walk in the spirit is actually the most consistent, logical reasonable thing to do. You're, you're just walking in who you actually are. I'm free, so I should live like that, shouldn't I? <laughs> I'm, I'm free, so of course my life should look like that. 
I want my life to reflect what Jesus has done for me. Of course, we can, that isn't always true for us. There are many stories of slaves in the American South who when they were liberated, they, they stayed in their homes of their, of their slave masters, even though they were free. And they carried on working and serving and doing their old jobs. Because the, although they were free, they didn't walk into it. They didn't know how to. And so often that can be true for us as believers, that we're free, but we don't actually know how to walk into the good of that. And hopefully that's what we'll get to see a little bit this morning. Because in this passage, it talks about, on one hand, that we should walk by the Spirit. It's an, it's an active thing. It's something that we should do. There's lots of commands in the New Testament about how we should walk in God, that our Christian life is a walk. In Romans 6, it talks about we walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians, we walk by faith, not sight. In Ephesians, we, we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. I could go on and on. There's lots of commands for us, instructions for us to walk. The Christian life is a walk. It's something we do. There's an activity to it. But at the same time, this passage, it says that we are led by the Spirit. That we're led by the Spirit. It says in Philippians 2 that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That what Jesus has done in us, we need to work it out. We need to walk it out. It's an activity. We need to do something. But then it says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is the tension that you'll spend your life trying to figure out how that works. I'm, I'm called to walk, to work out my faith. Yet, even in doing that, that is God working it out through me, that I'm to walk in the Spirit, but at the same time I'm being led by the Spirit. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, don't worry, because you'll probably spend your whole life wrestling with how that works. But hopefully that should be a, a releasing, joyful, powerful thing, that it means that you're not alone in your faith. It's not just, right, now Jesus has saved you, go and figure it out. It's like Jesus has saved us and now he's empowered me, given me the strength to work it out, to live it out. Perhaps the best way to understand this is to go and look at Jesus' life himself. The famous story, at the start or before the start of Jesus' ministry, he goes into the wilderness, into the desert, and he prays and he fasts for 40 days. And the devil comes to tempt him. You can read about it in Matthew and in Luke chapter 4. And it says in Luke 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan where he was baptized and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. The same way the Holy Spirit comes to lead us, the Holy Spirit came to lead Jesus. That should be a wonderful comfort to us, that the same Holy Spirit that has come into your life to lead you is the same Holy Spirit that came to lead Jesus. 
And Jesus is our, he gives us this pattern to follow of what it looks like to be full of the Spirit, of what it looks like to be led by the Spirit. Because I think it's, to be led by the Spirit, I think it's, it's more than just a kind of, you can be led somewhere by a signpost, right? If you come to a crossroads, a junction, and you see a signpost saying, Simon, go that way, then particularly if your name was Simon, you would, you would go that way. Uh, or if you know, you're trying to get to Amsterdam, it says Amsterdam, you'd go that way. That's, you're, you're led by that signpost. I think that's one way that God leads us. You know, we can read his word and see pointers, directors. Go this way, go that way, do this, do that. But I think the leading of the Holy Spirit is actually a... I think it's a bit more like how a, a father will lead their child across the road. You, know, you don't just say, oh, busy road, off you go, I'm right behind you. <laughs> it's not how you lead a child across the road. You hold them by the hand. And, and, and often you're, you end up walking ahead of them, leading them, pulling them along. I think that's how often how the Holy Spirit leads us. I think if you think any differently, I think you might be over-exaggerating your own strength, your own ability. We all need the Holy Spirit to come and grab us, lead us. And often, most of the time, you're probably not aware of it at all. But that's what he's doing. He's got you. He's got a hold on you, a grip on you. And he's leading you. We can read about it in, all through the Bible. We read the, the story of the people of Israel in the book of Exodus as they go through the wilderness. And God's ahead of them. This cloud and this pillar of fire by night. He's leading them. He goes ahead of them. He guides them. I think that's a picture of how the Holy Spirit leads us. He goes ahead of us. He pulls us along with him into his purposes. It says in Jude, he instructs us in the book of Jude to keep ourselves in the love of God. Again, an activity, something we need to do. Keep yourself in the love of God. But then it finishes by saying, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, we're instructed to keep ourselves, but knowing that in our activity, that's his activity. He's keeping us. He's got us. He's leading us. He's directing us. A friend of mine who's written a wonderful book about the work of the Holy Spirit that we'll look at in a few weeks' time called Andrew Wilson, he said that life in the flesh is like rowing. You know, when you row a boat. But life in the spirit is like sailing. You see the, the difference there? When, when you're rowing, it's, it's hard work, it's effort. But when, when you're sailing, when you get the wind behind you, and you just go. Now, he's, he's not saying that sailing isn't effortless. If you've been sailing, it requires effort, it requires work to get it right. But the difference is that the power is external. It's the wind. It's the spirit, not internal. Your muscles or the flesh. That's what it is to walk in the spirit. It's not that we don't stop working, but we know his power within us. 
to use perhaps a more local illustration, if you're cycling around Amsterdam on a windy day, and you're cycling into the wind, you know, you're making progress, but it's slow and it's hard work. Do you know that feeling? And then you turn the corner and the wind just catches you from behind. And sometimes you don't even notice that you're going any quicker, but you're just suddenly aware of, oh, this is, this is so much easier now. <laughs> I just feel a freedom now. Oh, this is so much more fun. And you go past people coming the other way who are like straining and pushing and wobbling, trying to get through the wind, and just kind of breeze by, big smile on your face. I'm never going to turn again because I can't. I have to go this way now. That's what it is to know the Spirit helping us to walk in Him. We still have to pedal. We still have to work, but we know His strength, His empowering presence with us. Which I guess leads us to the question that perhaps some of you are thinking of, well, well why, why don't I? Why, why don't I walk in the Spirit? Maybe that there are things in your life that you, you feel like, I have no freedom over that. You know, your life doesn't feel like sailing. It doesn't feel like the wind is behind you. It feels like you're trying to be a Christian, but it feels an awful lot like hard work, labor, effort. Or maybe you've just given up. <laughs> and being a Christian is just, you come here on Sunday and sing a few songs to get a kind of a spiritual hit, kind of a Jesus high, and then you go and return to your normal life again, and it really doesn't impact you. You might think, well, what is this walk in the Spirit then? You know, am I, am I not doing it? Why am I not doing this? And the first response is to say to you that you are. See, that this Christian life, there is an element of battle to it. And you won't always feel victorious. Doesn't mean that you aren't. You just won't feel like that. Because if we go back to Jesus' story where he's led by the Holy Spirit, where is he led into? He's led into the wilderness, into the desert, so Satan can tempt him. <laughs> you think, well, that's... What? Surely the Holy Spirit should lead him somewhere such, so much more glorious and powerful than that. But that's often, not always, but sometimes that's how the Holy Spirit leads you. If you're in a season where you're just struggling, battling against temptation, it might be that the Holy Spirit has actually led you there. Not to harm you, because he wants to do something within you. It isn't just a surface. He doesn't just take us as Christians and put a nice sheen and a nice shine on us. He gets right into the depths of our heart to change us, to change you. John Owen, who I enjoy quoting from, said that the key to this really is a sense of being restless for a recovery. John Piper, the preacher, talked about a, a persevering fight, not a perfect flawlessness. Okay, and that's what it means to be a Christian. 
Being a Christian doesn't just mean perfection. God will lead you into dealing with your sin. And that will sometimes take a very long time. will sometimes be very painful. And it's not that God's abandoned you. It's not that he's not at work in you. He might be more at work in you than he ever has been. Because he's, he's changing you. And we live in this, this time of where what is mortally wounded, the flesh, it will die. It will. But we live in this in-between times where we still battle against temptation. We still battle against the flesh, although we know ultimately we are victorious. There's a victory for us. But in all of that, it's important you understand that the Spirit is sufficient. He's enough. Because sometimes you can get led into a place where you think, I I need another encounter. I I need to to, to move on to the next superior level of Christianity. I need need a a kind of something to just blast away all this rubbish. And you you have enough of God right now. He's he's sufficient. The, The grace he's given you is enough. Now, at the same time, we we can desire and we can ask and we're instructed, we're told to keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. But his power is sufficient, right? You don't need, you you, you don't need to graduate to the next level of Christianity. He's enough for you. Sometimes I I meet with believers and I hear them say things like, well, you, you just don't understand what I'm going through. You know, if you knew what I was like, you'd know that I I need something more. (laughs) That you you can't help me. I'm beyond help. And you're not. That's, (laughs) none of your problems or issues go beyond God's power. His Holy Spirit is completely sufficient. He's given you Right now, he's given you exactly enough, everything that you need. So it's important to know that there is a battle that he's working out within us. And also it's important to know that it might be that, it might be that he's given you a weakness a struggle to help you to rely on him. And actually to have a, a, a temptation that you always find drawing you back and you think, I wish that could just stop. It might be that God's put that there as a constant reminder that you need him. Because <laughs> if every time you came up against a barrier, God just removed it and the next barrier just removed, then I think what probably would happen is you would begin to feel a sense of your own victory. (laughs) I don't need God, because every time I come up against a challenge, I just kind of push my way through it, on to the next one. And we would very soon begin to rely on our own strength, on our own ability. And often, God puts challenges within us 
or in front of us to keep drawing us back, to keep reminding us of the richness of his mercy and of his grace. And actually, even as you mature as a Christian, as you become more like him over the weeks, months, and years, you'll actually find it's almost in a way the reverse happens. The more you become to come to know Jesus, the more you become aware of the things in your life that you want to fix. The more you become aware of, I didn't even realize that was an issue in my life. Wow, that one's been hiding for years. But suddenly God brings it into the open. It says in 2 Corinthians, do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Don't lose heart. He's at work renewing you, little by little. The next thing you might need to do is is to confront your narcissism. By that I mean confront the kind of this, this self-centeredness, the selfishness within your heart. Because often what it will do like, what it will do within us is it will draw us to our failures. That, that's that kind of default setting I was talking about at the start, that self-centeredness. It, it all, it, even when you come to consider God, it will draw you first to consider your own failings. <laughs> I'm such a loser. And, and God's like, no, look at me. <laughs> All right? Sometimes what we need to get our head around is the reason that we feel like we're failing and we're struggling and we're not walking in the Spirit is because we're so lost in our own world that we're we're not considering his grace and his mercy and his love. Sometimes you just need to break out of it and think, why am I so concerned with all this mess in my life? Because actually, the, the, the tone of the New Testament, this passage we're looking at in Galatians, where Paul's writing about the flesh and this battle, every single time he does this, it, the, the note it always ends on is Jesus. And he never focuses too long on our weaknesses. He's always keen to draw us into what we have in Christ. And we can read this list and we can get lost in, in those, those kind of lists of the works of the flesh. <laughs> and God wants to say, you know, look at the beautiful fruits of the Spirit that he's drawing into. Joy and peace gentleness, kindness. It doesn't mean we don't need to address the areas in our life that need fixing, but all the time he's drawing our focus and putting on something else, something greater, something more beautiful and powerful. Also, maybe you might need to consider your pride, because you might be thinking, well, I don't know why you guys are all struggling with this. My Christian life is quite straightforward. It's quite easy, really. You know, I just... The Bible says do this, so I do it. Ta-da! Maybe that's how you feel. You just, oh, I just, I'm constantly living in victory. I'm more than a conqueror in Christ, so every day I'm, I'm victorious over everything that comes my way. Well, that's well done. But be careful. Let me um, put this quote up on the screen. It's slightly old language, but stick with it because it's, a helpful quote. 
says the pleasure that is in his heart, he's, this is the writer Thomas Merton, who's an old Puritan, talking about what can sometimes happen in believers. The pleasure that in his, is in his heart when he does difficult things and succeeds in doing them well tells him secretly, I am a saint. Have you ever felt like that? I've just nailed that one. Yes, I'm a saint. At the same time, others seem to recognize him as different from themselves. They admire him or perhaps avoid him as sweet homage of sinners. The pleasure burns into a devouring fire. The warmth of that fire feels very much like the love of God. It is fed by the same virtues that nourish the flame of charity. He burns with self-admiration and thinks it is the fire of the love of God. He thinks his own pride is the Holy Ghost. <laughs> That's what can happen to you if you rely on your own strength. <laughs> I was relying on the strength of this uh, stand here. Thank you, Richard. Oh, no, here we go. When you rely on your own strength, you can get that thing that whirls up within you, that sense of inner pride and self-satisfaction that as the writer here is saying, we can we can think that is the Holy Spirit when actually it's just our pride. That's actually quite a, quite a scary, dangerous place to be in. I think it's worth thinking, which, which is the better feeling? To think, I resisted, you know, I defeated this sin, or to think, I failed, but look at his mercy. I think that's actually a better place to be in. To fail but come to his mercy rather than to succeed and take the credit for yourself. It's easy to see where God's really at work in that. And it might be that you're, this passage, you read it and you're feeling very uncomfortable And you're feeling like, what well, the reality is, I'm, I'm living in, in total defeat. I don't know any shred of any of this joy that you're talking about, any of this walking in the spirit. That's not what my life is like. I think it's important for you to know that there's always a, there's always a grace in that. As John Owen said, you can always be restless for a recovery. Even that tiny twinge you're feeling in your heart right now of, oh goodness, what a mess. That's the grace of God. He's calling you back to him, urging you to walk in the spirit again. That's the Holy Spirit at work. He's convicting you. It's wonderful. Now, how? It's a good question to finish on. How do we walk in the Spirit? How do we, how do, we do that? First of all, 
bit of an old work, mortify, which means to be, to be killing, to be putting something to death. So John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's a fight that we're in. It's important to take up the battle and to say, I'm, I'm going to put to death these things that, that are trying to lead me back into my old life. I say, I don't need those anymore. I can put them to death. It's something we get to do now with his power within us. But I would encourage you to, to make that a team effort. I've always found it so much easier, particularly if there's some habitual like sins that you keep coming back to again and again. A good way to really put them to death is to find some other brothers or sisters and walk through that battle together. Because there might be something in your life that you think, I could never, ever tell anybody that. But then when you do, you'll often find they'll say, oh yeah, I struggle with that too. <laughs> or I struggle with something else, can you help me with this? I'm reading through the book, um, the, the um, what's it called? The second Lord of the Rings book. Two Towers, there you go. I'm halfway through reading that at the moment. I've just finished the bit, which is actually at the end of the movie, but it's in the middle of the book, The Battle of Helm's Deep. Right, have anyone read the book or seen the movie? If you haven't, I'm just, I'm distraught. Come on, guys, we need to, need to be watching Lord of the Rings. Anyway, there's... Um, in Lord of the Rings, there's this, this battle scene, the battle for Helm's Deep. And two of the kind of the goodies are Legolas, who's an elf, and Gimli, who's a dwarf. And they spend this battle for Helm's Deep fighting against these orcs. And there's this sense of competition in their battle that they keep this tally, they keep totting up who's killed the most orcs. And there's this competition between the two of them of who can kill the most. And sometimes even in, you see it in the movie where one of them is about to get attacked and the other one takes out an orc just before it gets them. And they boost their own tally, but they save their friend. I think you can, you can do that with the sin in your life. Is you can get some, some friends to walk with you and you can, you can together as a team kill some of the, the orcs. The things in your life that want to trip you up. There's something in doing that together that you'll find wonderfully releasing. As I said, John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And he, he wrote a whole book called The Mortification of Sin about how to do this. But perhaps the most important, important thing he said in this book was this quote, where he said, all other ways of mortification, so all the ways that we could try and kill sin, are vain. All helps leave us helpless it must be done by the Spirit. See, that's the weapon that we have. That's the, the armor that he's given us. The strength that we fight with is the Spirit within us. He'll help you to do this. He's the helper. So mortify, put sin to death. Next, another word we don't use very often, vivify, vivification. On one hand, you can live your Christian life as a, a fight against, as taking on the things that the uh, trying to call you back into your old life, this flesh, this self-centered desire within you. But actually, perhaps the more effective way is this idea of vivification. That means to fix our eyes on Jesus, to feed on His Word, to delight yourself in prayer and in worship 
And in doing that, that's where you'll find the Holy Spirit flood into your life to help you to work this out. We get this pleasure of being able to delight ourselves in a, in a greater love. There's a story, let me read you an illustration I'm going to steal from this book. A wonderful book called One Thing by Sam Storms. I'd strongly recommend you read it. But he steals a story from Greek mythology, which I think is helpful to illustrate that. He talks about this story of Ulysses and, and Jason. Where he said, Countless were the unwitting sailors who on passing by the island succumbed to the outward beauty of the sirens and their seductively irresistible songs. Once lured close to shore, their boats crashed on the hidden rocks lurking beneath the surface of the sea. So in Greek mythology, there's these sirens who live on an island who in the myth they would sing as sailors sail past. And the sailors would be so captivated with their voice that the boats, they would just say, oh, we've got to go that way. But actually would be leading them into, into danger, onto the rocks, and the boats would crash. And this character, Ulysses, he'd been repeatedly warned about the sirens, but upon reaching their island, he ordered his crew to put wax in their ears so that they couldn't hear. And he commanded them to look neither to the left nor to right, but to row for their lives. But Ulysses had other plans for himself. He instructed his men to strap him to the mast of the ship, leaving his ears unplugged. He said, I want to hear their song. No matter what I say or do, don't untie me until we're safely at distance from the island. So he straps himself to the mast because he wants to hear the song. He says, as long as you guys resist, I'll be fine. Just straps me to the mast so I can hear it. But the songs of the sirens were more than Ulysses' otherwise strong will could resist. He was utterly seduced by their sound, mesmerized by the promise of immediate gratification. One siren even took the form of Penelope, Ulysses' wife, seeking to lure him closer on the delusion that he had finally arrived home. Were it not for the ropes that held him tightly to the mast, Ulysses would have succumbed to their invitation. Although his hands were restrained, his heart was captivated by their beauty. Although his soul said yes, the ropes prevented his indulgence. <laughs> so often you can try and stand against the temptations of the flesh of the world around you by, by living like that. <laughs> that can be a danger in a city like Amsterdam. You can, you can through willpower alone, we kind of shackle ourselves and just try and resist, kind of grit our teeth and get through it. That was Ulysses' strategy. But then, let's talk about what Jason did. So when it came time for his ship to sail past, Jason declined to the plug the ears of his crew. Neither did he strap himself to the mast to restrain his otherwise lustful yearning for whatever pleasures the sirens might offer. But this was not the reckless decision of an arrogant heart. Jason had no illusions about the strength of his will or his capacity to be deceived. He was no less determined than Ulysses to resist the temptations of the sirens. But he chose a different strategy. 
He ordered Orpheus, who I know you're thinking, isn't he the guy from the Matrix? Well, this is the first Orpheus before that. He ordered Orpheus to play his most beautiful and alluring songs. The sirens didn't stand a chance. Notwithstanding their collective allure, Jason and his men paid no heed to the sirens. They were not in the least inclined to succumb. Why? Was it that the sirens had ceased to sing? Was it that they had lost their capacity to entice the human heart? Not at all. Jason and his men said no because they were captivated by a transcendent sound. The music of Orpheus was, was of an altogether different and exalted nature. Jason and his men said no to the sounds of the sirens because they heard something far more sublime. They tasted something far sweeter that encountered something far more noble. <laughs> because what it really is to walk in the spirit is it's like a joyful obedience. It's not this kind of cold, grit your teeth, asceticism, like I just must, I just have to win this battle. It's letting the Holy Spirit breathe on you and draw you into this, the delight and the wonder of who Jesus is. And when you live your life looking to that beauty, of singing that song, then you resist, not out of any strength of your own willpower, but because something far greater has captivated you. Something far greater is drawing you. Because the Holy Spirit will come and transform your desires. Not all at once, but he will. Little by little, sometimes in big steps, often moment by moment, he'll transform your desires. He'll ruin you for anything else. The Christian life isn't supposed to be a long, hard, painful trudge. It's supposed to feel like there's a wind behind you. It doesn't mean that life isn't hard, but in all of those moments, you can know strength and power. There's spirit with you in all of that. There's a quote, another quote from Sam Storms that will come up. The essence of loving, living as a follower of Jesus isn't in trying harder, but in, ever, but in enjoying more. I'm not saying you can change without trying. I'm saying that enjoyment empowers effort. Pleasure in God is the power for purity. <laughs> That's just a, I want that like tattooed on my arm. Enjoyment empowers effort. <laughs> it does. When you're enjoying God, you, you just want to walk with him <laughs> when you're enjoying him. It's just so much easier, so much more delightful. And let me just finish with just a quick note. If you, if you have been struggling with the fact that you know you're not living like this, just be aware of his just wonderful grace for you. Let me just finish with another quote from John Owen that will appear here. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. 
He knew what we were and what we could do and what would be our dealings with him. He knew we would grieve him and provoke him, that we would quench his motions, we would defile his dwelling place, and yet he would come to be our comforter. And what are we toward whom he carries on this work? Froward. Froward's a word we don't use very more. Froward means difficult to deal with. A person that's a bit, you know those people that are a bit difficult, a bit like you, right, with God? We are difficult to deal with, perverse, unthankful, grieving, vexing, provoking him. We live like that sometimes, don't we? Yet in his love and tenderness, does he continue to do us good? Let me pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, we just thank you that's how you work. <laughs> that none of us are in any way flawless. We've all done things that should have forced you from us, done things that should have caused you to to leave this temple you've created in our bodies. And yet in your love and kindness, your tender delight in us, you remain. And you continue to work and to do us good by your phenomenal grace that we'll never understand, but we get to always enjoy. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would, as it said in Romans, you would just come and shed this love into our hearts again. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that's what you do. Come and reveal the love of the Father deep into our hearts. I pray you would do that right now. Amen.